Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. welcome you to Finding Faith in Rock and Roll, Glimpses of God and the Greatest Hits of All Time. The question is, can faith really be found, I mean, in rock and roll? Should we actually have hope uh, for healing or that something good is going to come in the modern world in which we live? Well, apparently, you too believe so. (laughs) And if you've ever listened to their music, you know that faith, hope, and love play integral roles in their most classic anthems. I remember the first time I heard uh, the opening chords to Where the Streets Have No Name, at least heard them live for the first time. I was actually 19. I was out in Los Angeles at the time in, in, in uh, attending film school. I didn't have any money. But I'd heard that the Irish, you know, supergroup was coming to town. I'd been a fan of them since 1987 when their, you know, monster album, The Joshua Tree, uh, hit. And, and I was like, wow, the possibilities of rock and roll. And I, but I missed seeing them on that tour. And so this time around, as they were releasing Octoon Baby, I took no chances. I skipped meals for a week, saved and pooled all my money, and actually scalped a ticket, rented a car, actually drove two hours to Anaheim Stadium, went all alone. And I remember that night vividly. It was really strange. Public Enemy opened up, which is kind of a strange like act, threw me off. But, but the main show was incredible. It was their Octoon Baby tour, which featured you know Bono and the fly shades, all leather, just a barrage of sight and sound. Sensory overload, an incredible show. And I recall thinking, after they left the stage, I was like, wow. I was like, that was pretty, pretty, pretty cool. But, but it seems like they left out some hits. And then I realized no one was leaving. <laughs> Every, everyone was just kind of waiting, buzzing, like they knew what to expect. And in the shadows of the stage, I could see the band members kind of reassembling, the edge going to his guitar, Adam strapping on his bass, Larry Mullen, the drummer, kind of getting, getting behind his kit. And the only person I couldn't see was Bono. And then, boom, everything went dark. All the lights out. And through the blackness, you could, you could faintly hear those silvery guitar chords. They started to peel like, you know, like church bells. Ding, 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 ding. Every chime building anticipation. And then you see this little figure sidle up to the mic. I want to run. Ow, and boom, the place exploded. These blinding lights went on. And 50,000 people went crazy. I mean, literally, the place went nuts. I actually felt scared. I was... <laughs> That's, that is not hyperbole. I was in the upper deck, and the concrete beneath my feet, if you've ever had this effect in the stadium, actually began to buckle and bounce. 50,000 people in unison. Hands shooting up, people closing their eyes, they're singing along, their hands are raised, and that's when I converted. <laughs> I became a believer that night. I was caught up in the power of that moment. 50,000 people, eyes closed, howling in unison. We get to the part, oh! Oh, you know, everybody, you've all done it. Come on. 
I was hooked. How many of you actually ever been to a U2 show? You've been there live. Okay. Wow. All right. Excellent. Uh, that performance did it for me because I became actually sort of obsessed. Went on to see him about seven or eight times on that tour. Everywhere from the Meadowlands Arena in New Jersey, followed him all the way to a soccer stadium in Berlin. And uh, every time, no matter what the vibe or the weather, whether they're about sound or rain, I knew I could guarantee this experience was going to culminate in that moment of transcendence. When the opening chords laid down for that encore, Edge's guitar chiming, building up, and Bono jutting out his you know, jaw. I want to run, I want to hide. And each time, it was amazing. It was like Pavlovian. People would jump up out of their seats, close their eyes, sing along, raise their hands, and well, what would be a good word? Worship? It was amazing. I don't mean just like in the worship the rock god kind of adulation that like Bon Jovi gets. You know, like, oh, we're not worthy. We love you, John. Not that. I mean a truly worshipful moment. There's a guy by the name of Randy Rowland. He's a pastor. He writes for Worship Leader magazine. And he wrote a piece describing how he actually played hooky from church when Maundy Thursday and went to a U2 show instead. And he described it this way. He said, as Bono got people singing on some of the songs, he would adjure unto the Almighty, unto the Almighty. Not unlike a worship leader urging the audience to sing it to the Lord now. I found myself singing the songs very aware of God's gracious presence. At times during the concert, I found myself praying in the gaps between songs or during instrumentals. Now catch this. When the concert was over, I realized I had been involved in worship, even though I hadn't really expected to worship. I hadn't been all that conscious of what I was being caught up in. But there I was, worshiping the risen Lord at a rock concert. Worship at a concert? Can a rock show be spiritual? If you've ever seen them live, you know exactly what I'm talking about. U2's music has always been about something bigger than just the sound of a guitar. Brian Walsh wrote a brilliant essay entitled Biblical Hope in U2. It's actually a primary source for my message tonight. And in it, he noted how early in their life there were two competing forces that really influenced U2 musically as well as spiritually. U2 came out of a punk rock scene in the late 1970s and at the same time were part of a charismatic Christian community called Shalom in Dublin during their formative years. So early on, they actually left when the religious members of their church told them that being a Christian and playing rock music were incompatible. But the three Christian members of the band, Bono, The Edge, and Larry, were by that time, they were steeped in scripture, Christian community, and they cut their teeth in the hard scrabble punk clubs of Dublin Southside. And so as such, when you look at U2's music, it's an interesting mix of influences. On the one hand, they write lyrics in the prophetic tradition of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And on the other hand, you hear echoes of the sex pistols. <laughs> they are indebted to the clash and to Jesus. <laughs> and when they started out, those three Christian members of the band believed that God himself had given them unique gifts to make a profound impact through their music on the world for the kingdom of God. Check this out. In a letter to his father, Bono, lead singer, wrote about beginning each day in prayer, scripture, reading, and inviting God to work in their lives. He wrote this. He said, God gives us our strength and a joy that does not depend on drink and drugs. This strength will, I believe, be the quality that will take us to the top of the music business, where never before have so many lost and sorrowful people gathered in one place pretending they're having a good time. It is our ambition to make more than good music. Early on, they had their eye on bigger game than just a three-minute hook that people can sing. Songs of hope, songs of freedom, songs about deliverance and redemption. It's their trademark, and perhaps none more so than where the streets have no name. That was the lead song off their 1987 masterwork, The Joshua Tree. 
They went on to sell over 130 million albums worldwide. They've won over 14 Grammys, regularly sell out their world tours. I think Ed Bradley said a billion dollars grossed. And they're living legends in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So what is it about U2's music, and this one song in particular, that inspires such powerful connection with something beyond the music? I mean, for me, I'm like, maybe it's that opening cry of transcendence. You know, I want to run, I want to hide, I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. Like, it gives voice to that universal heart cry for release, for freedom, for refuge. It talks about this place, a place that's actually beyond what's here on Earth, earthbound space and time. I'll show you a place high on a desert plain where the streets have no name. It gives us a vision of heaven, perhaps, where the streets have no name and, and perhaps are paved with gold, we all ultimately have a desire for deliverance, the hope that actually this present world is not all that there is, that something better is coming, that a new world is on its way. Some call it the hope of heaven. And that desire that you may feel from time to time, especially as you watch the evening news, is one born of just, you know, it could be personal pain or just fatigue with how things are in our everyday world. I mean, flip on the evening news, right? War, terrorism, famine, poverty, violence. You two knows this as well as anyone. As some of you know, they were raised in Ireland in the 60s and 70s. You know what was happening there at the time? The Troubles, as they call it. Right? The fierce violence between the Protestants and Catholics literally having a bloodbath on the streets. And it literally mattered what street you were from where they grew up, what the name of your street was. If you were from the wrong side of the tracks, you could be a target. And the war between the British and the Irish Republican army on those streets would saturate them with blood in the 70s and the 80s and brought death and destruction to modern Europe. Now, that sectarian violence between Catholics and Protestants, it was religious violence, which you two grew up with. It was recalled in their first song, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Know that one? From the 1983 album War, right? Broken bottles under children's feet, bodies strewn across a dead-end street, and the battle's just begun. There's many lost, but tell me, who has won? The trenches dug within our hearts, and mother's children, brothers, sisters torn apart, Sunday, bloody Sunday, on a Sunday, bloody Sunday. He, Bono was writing about one of the bloodiest weekends in the Protestant-Catholic conflict, and he asked a profound question. Where in the world do you find hope in a world in which British soldiers fire into crowds of protesters, and the IRA bombs Protestant communities in Northern Ireland and subways in London? Can there be hope when Sunday, the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is a day of murderous bloodshed? Early on, you two never shied away from the big questions. And those questions remain as relevant as ever as people fly planes into buildings, believing that they are doing this in the name of their God. But the truth is, any hope that's really going to be biblical has to address the realities of violence and hatred in, in the world and in our own hearts. I mean, you know, Bono sings, I can't believe the news today. I can't close my eyes and make it go away. Maybe we can't believe the news today. News of bombings in Lebanon or Israel, terrorist attacks in Manhattan or Madrid, kidnappings, there's like beheadings in Baghdad. Maybe we can't believe that loneliness or abject poverty are still realities in our own incredibly affluent 21st century world. We can't believe the news today. But Bono sings, you can't close your eyes and make it go away either, can't you? You can't avert your gaze from the deep brokenness of our world. And you, simply cannot, you can't simply identify brokenness as something out there, because as the lyrics insist, where the trenches of violence dug that the Bible calls sin and selfishness, within our hearts. And so in the face of such pain and despair during their formative years early on, you too took up the refrain of the psalmist, specifically echoing the refrain of Psalm 40. How long, how long must we sing 
this song. Those of you who know went to concerts, you know they've closed their concert for years with that chorus. It's a psalm of lament. And if you've ever held a lighter and sung along, how long, how long, you know the ache that goes with it. And the hope as well. Because hope is actually where you two eventually landed. And, and that's where the hope-based lyrics of Streets takes us, to a longing for another world, a different reality than the one we see every day on the evening news. By definition, hope is literally seeing things that in this present world are nowhere to be seen. It's a vision more than a reality. The hope of heaven, that the kingdom of God, of goodness, of love, of peace, may one day actually touch down on this earth. And so the question their song raises is, heaven, up there or down here? Is the hope of heaven just a pie-in-the-sky idea? A wispy kind of, you know, religious notion that gets our minds conveniently off the terrible things that are happening down here. That's what a lot of critics of Christianity claim. You know, that God in heaven is just, you know, it's like an opiate for the masses, right? And maybe you're not a Christian tonight. Maybe you think that. Totally fine. You're welcome here. Or is it possible that God actually intends to bring heaven down to earth? And that the inbreaking of that reality of hope, of healing, of peace is actually supposed to be found with increasing measure in the everyday lives of his people. Bono, for one, has his suspicions about this. In a 1988 interview with Hot Press, he said, I don't expect this pie-in-the-sky stuff when you die. (laughs) My favorite line in the Lord's Prayer is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. I want it all. I want it now. Heaven on earth, now. Let's have a bit of that. I guess you've got to be an Irish rock star to say that. But, I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Heaven on earth, we need it now. But the idea is not as far-fetched as we might think, at least according to the Bible. A day when heaven crashes into this earth with such force that it obliterates and transforms everything broken and sorrowful, but for the good, that's actually not Bono's idea. It's the biblical picture we're given in Revelation chapter 21. And that's actually where I'd like to look at briefly tonight as we consider the question, heaven, down here or up there? It's the second to last chapter of the Bible. We have Bibles in the ends of the pews. If you'd pass them down for people to take a look at so they can follow along. It's also in your bulletin. We'll turn the lights up a little bit, Mikey, so that people can read. And we're just going to look at the first five verses that the author John gives us. Because this is a prediction. This is a prophecy, actually. And um, it's a symbolic picture of what is to take place at the end of the age or the end of the world. And you might be surprised to discover what God has in store. Read with me. This is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. This is what John writes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things 
has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now let's just stop right there because here's the deal. John is a Jewish writer. And the form of literature here is called apocalyptic. Last week we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes. That's wisdom literature, right, in the Old Testament. But the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. Let's say that together. Ready? Apocalyptic. Good. You've seen the movie with Will Smith. I'm sure there's one out there. But apocalyptic is a Greek word that literally means removing the cover of something. And so the idea is that God, in Revelation, God is pulling back the curtain for us to let us see behind the reality on earth right now and give us this future vision of the kingdom of heaven that he has promised to establish when Christ returns. Now, in the Jewish mind, this is hard for us because when I say heaven, it instantly conjures up pictures in your head. What's the first thing? What's the image you think of when I say heaven? Tara, what are you thinking? Quick, image. Angels with wings. Are they fat? Are they tiny? Kind of floating around? Yeah. <laughs> Many religious people have a whole Markian moment at this time when I say heaven. We think angels, we think harps, we think clouds. Now, that's religious people. Secular people, when we say heaven, what do they typically think? All right, I'll tell you. I asked a friend this week. He's actually an atheist. He, I go, what do you usually think of? Like, if I, if I say heaven, what would heaven be to you in your mind? He's like, oh, dude, endless round of golf. There's no end. You don't get tired. You just keep going round and round in circles. And I was like, no, that's hell, actually. <laughs> Typically, secular people, when they think of heaven, they think of a place where whatever they enjoy in this life is just like cranked and amped up to 11. (laughs) Okay? Both, neither of them are biblical. In the Jewish mind, heaven was less a geographical place that you went. It was was not an actual place like somewhere that you could be like transported to. It was far more of a realm, a reality, a way of actually living and moving and having your being on this earth earth. So when a Jew like Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, it's essentially this place where things are as God intends them to be. It's not necessarily some distant location, but a presently reality that you can actually enter into. Hence, why Jesus taught his followers to pray this way. May your kingdom come, may your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. Bono's right about this. Jesus taught us to pray that the reality of heaven would one day crash and penetrate into this earth. So if you really want to be true to Christian theology, heaven, rather than being some fluffy reality in the future afterlife, has very real street-level implications for this present world. Where God, what he wants done, where his word holds full sway, it defines a different reality. That's heaven. On earth, however... Earth is currently the place where, all, where things are as all sorts of people want them to be, right? You have your kingdom, I have mine. You have your range of effective will. Maybe it's your home where things are done in your order, in your way, this way. Your word holds full sway in the Wiley household. Liz is like, hmm, not so much. Many of us leave our kingdoms in the morning and you enter your boss's kingdom at work where whatever he says goes and this is where the conflict begins. There are literal kingdoms in this world competing with one another. Take the Middle East, for instance, right? Currently, you have the Arab world, right? The kingdom of Islam, working hard to enforce its beliefs and practices on the rest of the world. Then you have Israel, the Jewish kingdom, working hard to resist, right? And turn back the Arab influence. Kingdoms in conflict. 
And that's the source of much of the pain and bloodshed and sorrow and suffering we witness on the evening news. But when John speaks of this coming age, the end of the world is what he's talking about. He speaks of a marriage of kingdoms. The image here is of a marriage ceremony, of heaven actually being united to earth, and essentially the kingdom of heaven, where things are exactly as God intends them to be. Our God of love, of peace, of forgiveness, of healing, smashes into the earth and takes over, which may not seem so bad. Some of you are like, that sounds pretty good, but it raises a question. I like how Rob Bell, author of Velvet Elvis, phrases this. He says, if heaven... God's reality, were to crash into earth tomorrow, would that be a good thing for you? Would you enjoy it? Would you be comfortable? Would there be things you'd have to learn really fast? Whoa, what's changed? Where would the whiplash be? What I mean is, if you are a bitter person, you are hard in your heart and cynical, and the earth is suddenly invaded by pure, unadulterated joy, would it be heaven for you? If you are stingy and tight and you aren't compassionate and you are not generous in this life and suddenly you find yourself in the presence of sheer, unadulterated generosity, would that be heaven for you or would you actually be miserable? More pointed, if you are a racist, closet racist, we all know better than to say it out loud, but let's say you have bigoted, biased feelings and attitudes towards people of other lifestyles, skin colors, or political preferences, or ethnic backgrounds. And suddenly you find yourself in the presence of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And you find yourself at this great wedding banquet table that's described earlier in Revelation. And you're a minority at the table. And the table is populated with people that you have deep, racist feelings for. Is it heaven for you? Or is it hell? Is it just possible that the flames of heaven may be hotter for some of us than the flames of hell. This passage in Revelation cautions us, be careful what you wish for. And there really are three main images that characterize this invasion or this inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven into this world and what it means for us who profess to have God in our lives. And the first thing we learn is that God's presence brings always renewal. That's our key verse there in verses 3 through 5. Now the dwelling of God is with men. He'll live with them. They'll be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will be their God. And here's what will happen. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Point. When Christ returns in God's full presence... It will bring the healing and renewal of all things. And this is impossible for us to imagine. We have no point of reference for it. I want you to imagine a day where crying is banished from the earth. Not like, not like there's no crying in heaven, but just for a day. There is literally no need for tears. Not one child dies of malnutrition. Marriages that were painful and coming apart were healed and renewed. Those who were sick and in pain found complete relief and were restored to complete health. Just a day, 24 hours. I want you to imagine the evening news that night. Uh, I'm sorry, we have to uh, cut short our broadcast tonight. Um, There's actually uh, nothing to report. No tragedies, no tsunamis, no terrorism. According to AP reports coming out of Jerusalem, uh, Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah, in a shocking turn of events 
laid down their guns, and went out for a beer. I don't, I don't, I don't know if this is true. No bloodshed in the Middle East. Can you imagine this? It is otherworldly. But in many ways, to be a Christian means the vision for that, for peace, for harmony, for goodness, is not otherworldly, but should become increasingly thisworldly because the Spirit of God is now present in your heart through faith. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus first came to this earth, he announced his mission statement by reading from the scroll of Isaiah. It says, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, this is chapter 61 of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, get this, Jesus' stated mission during his time here on earth was to break in the kingdom of heaven right now. (laughs) To bring a touch of healing to begin bringing renewal everywhere he went for people who were suffering, in pain, who were in bondage, or who were oppressed, whose eyes were bloodshot with tears. And he did that in a very literal way. There will be no more death. Lazarus, get up, come forth. Why are you in tears about your daughter, woman? Little girl, arise. Everywhere he went and every miracle he performed was about bringing the reality of God's healing presence to this earth. And making the kingdom of heaven just a bit more visible to everyday people whose lives were clouded with confusion, heartbreak, and loss. The point? To be a Christ follower and live with God's spirit in our hearts and follow in the footsteps of Jesus should mean that wherever we go, we bring a little piece of heaven with us. Unusual things should happen because God is with us. His spirit is in our hearts. And he is spreading the influence of his coming kingdom through his followers. We see that in small ways in the world around us when God's spirit stirs. We saw it a few weeks ago, right, at our, at our free market outreach, where the church, God's people, followers of Christ, not just the people here in Basking Ridge, invaded the city of Morristown, not to proselytize arrogantly, but to serve humbly. We held a free market, not a flea market where you sell overpriced junk, Rather, 300 followers of Christ brought their best and gave it away for free to the neediest families in the city. And it was incredible because we served almost 900 families and individuals at or below the poverty line, giving them our best clothes, bikes, new baby furniture. And it was an incredible day. I mean, inner city kids treated to an afternoon of face painting and hula hoops and unlimited ice cream. And at the end of that day, one of you said to me, I remember this, said, that was the greatest four hours of my life. She was like, that was incredible. And the next day, she's like, I still have a high from that experience. Why? Why was that such a good day? Because on that green, for just a few hours, the kingdom of heaven came crashing down to earth. People got a glimpse of what it will be like when God returns and things go according to his plan. The last were served first. Those actually who are blessed with the most were privileged to bow and serve the poor. The widows and the orphans, what we call single moms and those without dads, were cared and provided for. The forgotten, the lonely, the immigrant, the homeless, those without shelter, clothes, food, were given companionship. And we did it for God, 
for joy because that's how things are supposed to be in God's economy. And it was a foretaste of things to come, a warm-up of sorts for how things will eventually be when Christ returns to establish his kingdom in full. See, the kingdom of heaven, folks, is both now and not quite yet. (laughs) That is, now that Jesus Christ, God's son, has actually defeated sin and death with the sacrifice of his life on a cross, salvation and the renewal of all things is guaranteed. All things are under God's control and rule. However, he has yet to return to establish his kingdom fully. And in the meantime, he's left it up to his followers to prepare the way. To announce the arrival of the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Which means that our tiny lives are supposed to have the same impact that God's enormous presence will soon have on this world. We're actually to spend ourselves wiping away tears from the eyes of those around us. We are to actively work against oppression, hurt, pain, and the destructive effects of sin in this world. Each of us is given a life to spend making the reality of the kingdom of heaven more and more a reality on this earth. Glenn gets this. Some of you know my co-pastor Glenn here. He's a guy who gets this. He's a healer. Someone who brings healing and renewal to relationships through the gift of counseling. I watch it every day. You see, I watch married couples who are going through tough times. They go upstairs in Glenn's office. He's like, a, he's like a broker in reconciliation. He coaches forgiveness. And when I watch from my desk as couples exit his office, they often exit much differently than when they entered. A lot of times, arm in arm instead of horns locked together. Glenn loves to spend himself in the restoration of relationships. And because of that, the kingdom of heaven has come a little more fully to this earth. Love prevails. Reconciliation happens because of how he's spending his life on earth as it is in heaven. Question for you. Does your life, your presence at work, at home, in school, bring healing and renewal and hope to those you rub elbows with? That's a great way to test the sincerity of your faith. Does it actually benefit those without faith? Or does it make them want to cry? (laughs) That's the sad reality. The way that many Christians in this world actually express their faith is too often a source of tears and grief and frustration to non-believers. Rather than, oh good, he's a Christian. Less anger, more love. Less judgment, more healing. They're like, oh, she's a Christian. Watch out. Here comes a nice healthy portion of judgment and criticism. And it makes him want to cry. The presence of God, John tells us, when it's truly in someone's life, will actually wipe tears away. There'll be less sorrow and grief, not more. Point. We're to live in such a way that it gives people a foretaste of what it's going to be like when God comes in his full glory. Right now, he lives in our hearts and through the lives of us in a stunning way. It's like we get to be the warm-up band for God's return. Heaven on earth brings renewal and healing wherever it goes. So the first image of the kingdom of heaven is renewal. Now, I'm going to make this easy for you. We're going to begin with an R, Okay. The second one is tied to the image of light and fire. Now, I mean, you can't really conjure up images of heaven or streets with no name without blinding light, can you? I mean, in the opening stanzas of U2's song, Bono sings, I want to feel what? Sunlight on my face. I want to see the dust cloud disappear without a trace. I want to reach out and touch the flame where the streets have no name. Sunlight. There's no more heavenly image, and it's actually biblical. It tells us something revealing about who God is. Flip over one page to Revelation 22, verse 5. John writes that when God comes in his fullness to this earth, verse 5, there will be no more what? Light. Why? 
They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. So God himself is light, pure light. But this isn't sunlight. Notice something. It actually says there is no sun in heaven. If you actually go back to verse 1 of chapter 21, it says there isn't any sea any longer either. So there will be no sun and no sea in heaven, which means heaven is not a day at the beach. <laughs> heaven is not like, oh, man, imagine to, one of my friends like, heaven, man, Jersey Shore, but no traffic. No. <laughs> no sun, no sea. <laughs> God himself is the light. That is his glory, his presence is going to fill the earth with brilliant, unfiltered light. This is one of the sources of power of U2's shows when they do Streets Live. Because the stadium's dark, and suddenly, boom, a switch is flipped, and 100 million watts of streaming yellow light illuminates the entire stadium. It's a powerful moment. And it echoes this teaching that God is light. Now, heaven crashing into earth is light punching a hole in the darkness until it starts bleeding. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5... The Apostle Paul takes off on this. He says this reality of when light crashes into earth, when God's present, doesn't just bring renewal, but it begins revealing something as well. Revealing what we've invested our lives in. He writes, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes, because he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. Because if light crashes into earth, God comes to be with his people, then all of a sudden, we're told, the floodlights get turned on. And you see everything that was once hidden in your life. (laughs) Paul continues, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose, because light reveals, light exposes what? The motives of people's hearts. So get this. On this earth, I may have been able to do a certain thing and mask why I did it. But when the lights are turned on, we will find out exactly what I was doing, which again, may be a very scary prospect for some of us. I used to have this trick um, I played on Colleen when I knew I was going to be late coming home from work. Colleen's very gracious to me, but I often get caught up in work business. Some of you can relate to that, and she can't stand when I work late, especially when I don't call. And this happens more frequently. I just kind of like put my head down, I plow ahead, forget the time, and suddenly it's like 45 minutes past the time she was expecting me to be home, which sucks when you've got two kids been with them all day, and you have dinner sitting on the table. And here's the deal. I always have a legitimate reason. At least in my mind, all right? You know, so-and-so needed help. They came and cried, but it doesn't cut it. And I, I know this hurts her. When I say I'm going to be home a certain time, and then I'm not. So, a couple of years ago, I developed a little trick. Very sophisticated. I'd be working. It's 545. I knew I should wrap it up, get on the road, be home by 615 for dinner. But I can't. I'm just like, it's 15. I just got a minute. I, I want to check my email one more time. <laughs> check my email. Bing! <laughs> Oh, so-and-so wrote, you know what, I got five minutes. I'm going to type a quick response. And suddenly it's 6.45. Oh, crap. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. And I'd rush into my car and think, oh, man, Kyle is going to be upset when I get home. So what I'd do is, this is very crafty, I'd get my cell phone out beep, 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 and call her from the road. Just as I'd get in my car, start the engine, start playing on parking lot. When she'd pick up the phone, I'd say, hey, sweet, hey, just want to let you know that I'm almost there uh, and, and that I'm stopping by the supermarket. And I'd quickly like, pull into the shop right around the corner. Uh, to pick up uh, some shampoo. I think we were out, right? I was taking a shower this morning. Anyway, I just wanted to know if you needed me to pick up anything for you. <laughs> and then I'd hold my breath. Because I was hoping my scheme would work and that she'd have no choice but to say, well, what a considerate husband you are. <laughs> Always thinking of me first and how you can help. Well, this worked for about two weeks. And then she'd just say, Look, just, just come home. We, we, we all play these little tricks in our relationships with one another, don't we? 
presenting one face in order to make ourselves look good or exonerate ourselves or take advantage of another person, but actually really having very selfish motives underneath. I just didn't want to get in trouble with my wife. More than that, I just wanted to keep doing what I wanted to do, work, and not take her or our family into consideration and sacrifice in any way that would really cost me something. And in the end, I realized I was dealing deceitfully with my wife. Not like I'm having an affair, betrayal in the seat, but it wasn't until I realized that I was actually lying to her when I called and said, hey, I'm almost home. And I was actually stealing from her and my family when I chose to take their time and invest myself in my stuff instead. This may be a little thing in your mind because some of you are like, you got to be kidding. This is what marriages are made of. They sometimes crash and turn on big, you know, time to seat, but more often it's a subtle erosion of trust. It's how love leaks out of a relationship and it runs dry. And so to live the life of heaven is to live with this awareness that everything I do matters because it's all going to come to light. I have the ability and choice to live right now in the light in my daily relationships. So everything I say, everything I do, can be brought into this light and I'm not going to be embarrassed. I wouldn't be terrified. I wouldn't be ashamed of the motives behind how I've treated others. Now, that could relate to a spouse or to your parents. <laughs> could be how you relate to one of your coworkers or people with whom you do business. Is it characterized by honesty? By integrity? Because it will be brought to light when God starts the show and everything's illuminated. It's going to be a very revealing moment when heaven crashes into earth. What happens if you find yourself at the great banquet feast and the lights are turned on and guess who you're sitting next to? The spouse you conned. The friend you slandered. The customer you shortchanged. Could be a bit awkward. Perhaps the flames of heaven may be hotter than the flames of hell if you've mistreated people dealt with them deceitfully or obnoxiously, and you find yourself in the presence of pure, unadulterated love. And so the scripture says, Jesus is here. Live in the light. Because it reveals. Renewal, revelation, and I want to close now by extending this image of light into fire, because they are related. Most typically, people associate fire with destruction, right? Well, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Deuteronomy and says, our God is a consuming fire. And most people think of like end times, they think of fire. But it's not what you think. I mean, Bible sings, I want to I reach out and touch the flame. God is fire. And when he returns to this earth, it will be a moment of white hot intensity, but not in a destructive, like, fry them all capacity, as most people assume. Rather, God's fire serves a far more distinct purpose, and that is refinement. In 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul writes this. He says, by the grace God has given me, listen to what Paul says, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Now just stop. There are six things here and there are two categories. Gold, silver, and costly stones. They're one category. Wood, hay, and straw, all the other stuff that can get burned up, says their work will be shown for what it is because the day, and if it's capitalized, you know it's a big deal, (laughs) will bring it to light, bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each person's work. 
If what has been built survives, which would be gold, silver, costly stones, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, which would be wood, hay, or straw, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though as one escaping through the flames, which simply means some of us are going to smell like smoke. Fire in the scripture is not about destruction, but about refinement and purity in our life. Essentially, no impurity can exist in the presence of God because God is total purity. That's called his holiness. When we sing holy, holy, that's what we're saying. Purity, purity. No darkness can exist because he is pure light. No selfishness can exist because he is pure love, ultimate in compassion and generosity. So if God is fire, then in the presence of God, everything in our life that's impure or worthless in our lives gets burned away. And it's not destruction, it's refinement. Only the gold and silver remain. Now, this is not burning people up. This is not a God who torches people. Like when he returns, some people think this about God. Maybe you're here tonight. You're like, God returning, judgment time. I know what that's like. He's going to come down. He's going to have a list, and he's been checking it twice. Like some giant eternal blackberry, and he's like, I've been watching you. No, no. Rather, the haunting question will be, what did you do with your life? The image is a building here. I can build with materials like gold or silver, or I can build a life of hay and straw and stubble and stuff that's not worth anything. And heaven crashing into earth in the future will reveal what I've done with my life in the present. If you pay attention to current events, then you know that Bono's been everywhere over the last couple of years, not just on music magazines like Rolling Stone, but actually on the cover of Time, places you wouldn't normally expect to see a guy who wears sunglasses at 10 at night. (laughs) But he's one of the persons of the year celebrated by time this year, 2006. See, Bono, outside of his rock stardom, has become a tireless advocate for AIDS work and debt relief in the poorest sections of Africa. And not in some cheeky, like, you know, rock star with a causeway, you know? I mean, everybody, like Backstreet Boys, we care about Ethiopia. What? Get out of here. <laughs> this, this is the real deal. This is not just political activism for PR purposes. He has become an authentic champion for the poor and oppressed. He has invested a tremendous amount of his own personal fortune to relieve the suffering of those orphaned and afflicted with AIDS. And beyond that, I mean, what is money to a rock star worth hundreds of millions? He spent perhaps the most costly investment of all, his time. When he says, I'm not a cheap date, it means I spend a lot of time. He's dedicated thousands of hours not only visiting Africa and working with people on the ground, but tremendous time lobbying Congress and governments of other affluent nations on behalf of the poor. Because he's like, I got a voice, and I'm going to spend it for the voiceless. Arranging for debt relief. Spending his fame in drawing attention, hopefully charity, to AIDS relief in the African crisis. And throughout his work, he has made all sorts of strange bedfellows. Wasn't that the most amazing picture? (laughs) Him and President Bush, you know, he's Bono's like, you know, peace, you know, you know, Bush, like, just hang out with my friend Bono. You know, <laughs> I'm cool too. You know, and this is this has really captured the imagination of the public. What is a rock star in leather pants doing with a suit? You know, neglecting his fan base. You know, to to to, to poor people who don't even know his music. You know, the press is suspicious. Could Bono really be this benevolent? Is this PR? Well, in this interview I came across, I was blown away by his response because the interviewer asked him exactly that. He said, why are you spending so much of yourself, your time, your fame, your money, in trying to help Africa? And I almost spit my gum out when I heard his response. Because Bono, as only Bono can do, leans in and goes, because I'm greedy. And the interviewer was taken back. He's like, what, greedy? Yeah, I'm greedy. He's like, maybe you misunderstood my question. You're one of the richest men in entertainment, 
And I'm asking you why you're spending yourself, your time, your fame, your celebrity. And he says, because I'm greedy. And then he leaned in. He said, you see, I don't want to be just rock star rich. I want real treasure, big time affluence. I want to pile it up. Not another villa in the south of France, but treasure that doesn't rust. Stuff the moths can't eat. There's more than rock star riches. I want the whole thing. That's why I'm doing this. I'm not only ridiculously wealthy, I'm greedy on top of it. Add that to your list of adjectives when you describe me. And some of you are smiling because you know what he's referring to. Treasure that doesn't rust, stuff the moths can't eat, the gold and the silver that the fire won't burn away. In my opinion, Bono's like one of the slyest, most kingdom-minded Christ followers alive today. I was like, I can't believe this. He's preaching to this guy. <laughs> Treasure that doesn't rust, stuff the moths can eat. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> Those of you familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 know he's sampling someone else's lyric. In Matthew 6, Jesus said to his followers, I tell you, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I would argue that many of us already have an internal radar for this. You know when you're wasting time. And you know when you're spending your life on yourself. And you also know when you're taking part in something that matters, investing yourself in something of eternal value. I would be that that if we were to ask enough probing and honest questions, you already have an eternal sense that certain things you do actually matter and certain things do not. Like, what was I thinking? It's just like gone now. It's burned up. It's wasted on the moths and the rust. Now, this is not an invitation to sign up and go to Africa. (laughs) Because it's easy to dismiss service like that and say, well, I'm not a rock star. I can't save the world from poverty. (laughs) No, it's just a matter of scale. God says, what did you do with the life and resources I've given you? I may, have given you? I may not have given you five bags of celebrity gold like Bono, but what did you do with the one bag of gold I entrusted to you while on this earth? Jesus told the story about that. Some of you know Joe Kerr. Maybe, actually, not, probably most of you don't know Joe Kerr. He helps run our CD ministry here at Liquid. He'd be, actually be embarrassed by this. Because serving anonymously is his gig. (laughs) But Joe has become a pain to me recently. He asks very little. But recently he's been emailing nonstop and just just kind of nagging me incessantly to come with him to visit a friend of his named Donna. And at first I was like, I was like, Joe, you know, I serve so thank you. I would do you know I'd do anything for you, man. But I can barely keep up with meeting everyone in this congregation. (laughs) No offense, dude, but let alone make time to visit with people who don't go to church here. And then he wrote me an email explaining that actually Donna is a woman he met who has been paralyzed for 20 years. She was a mom who actually had five children and in a devastating accident became a paraplegic, confined to bed for 20 years. She's actually a Christian. Joe says she has an incredible faith. And in spite of her situation, she still praises God and refuses to let bitterness and hopelessness engulf her heart. And Joe has apparently gotten to know her. And he wrote me and said, here's the deal. I go to visit Donna every Sunday before coming to church. And it's like a highlight for her. I tell her all about the liquid services. I give her CDs, the, the messages, don't worry, I pay for them. And we just talk, I was like, no. <laughs> and we just talk about the Lord. He goes, it's actually become a real highlight for me too. Because I see how much of a comfort and encouragement it is to her. And so Joe wanted to know if I could make some time, 10, 15 minutes, to visit her as well. And as I thought about this, 
This idea about heaven crashing into earth, about our mission of Jesus, is wiping the tears from eyes of bringing comfort and hope to those who suffer. I thought, how could I not invest myself this way? Invest myself. Look what Joe is doing. When I consider what the scriptures are hinting and what Joe is investing himself in, in Jesus' words, I was sick and you cared for me. I was alone and you came to visit me. I started to realize that opportunities like this are what life, this life, is all about. What Joe's doing is the gold. It's the silver. Most of the emails I do, blown away. Wood, straw. It will suffer fire when God returns, and Joe will not lose his reward. What's the final point? To be a Christian with a biblical hope of heaven is to say, I'm going to invest my life wisely while I'm on this earth. In anticipation of heaven crashing into earth, I'm going to do all I can to bring a little heaven here and a little heaven there. And we're going to give away some of our best and we're going to serve the least regularly. And we're going to help out the poor or those in Africa or the truly needy in this world. And we're going to visit the sick because we understand that anticipation of God's returning, we get to be part of the opening act. We're the opening band for God's concert of recreation and healing. Behold, he is making all things new, and we get to prime the pump with our lives. Where the streets have no name. In the end, heaven is about companionship, folks. That's the great part, right? Bono sings, and when I go there, I go there with you. Heaven is about companionship, God bringing himself to be with us, right? The dwelling of God is now with men. They will live with him. They'll be his people. God will be with them and be their God. Imagine a day when loneliness is banished. Jesus tells us that there will be no marriage in heaven. When we first, Colleen first read it, she's like, really? Oh, no. It will be even better. You'll be married to Christ, Not this. (laughs) In another interview, Bono said, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe just might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. Do you believe that? It's almost too good to be true. And like anything that seems too good to be true, it does come with a hitch, a price tag. Only it doesn't cost you a cent. The hope of heaven is not some pie-in-the-sky when you die prospect. It's not about averting our eyes from the evil and violence of this world. True hope is bought at the cost of looking at the deepest violence ever done on this earth. The violence of the cross and the victory of a bruised, scarred, and pierced man on a Sunday, on a very, very bloody Sunday. The bloodiest of them all. As Bono sings, the battle's just begun to claim the victory Jesus won on a Sunday, bloody Sunday. Because of what Jesus did, God coming to earth the first time, absorbing all the pain and violence that this world can dish out as a sacrifice for you and for me, we can be reconnected to God. We can become people of hope because you know what? This isn't all there is. The inbreaking of God has begun. The great reversal has started, and he's making all things new by grace, the kindness of God. The tears will be wiped from bloodshot eyes. Instead of broken bottles and bodies strewn on a dead-end street, the reality is that we're actually coming closer and closer to the day that death will be no more. No mourning, no crying, no pain. The first order has passed away. One day, streets will have no name. 
It will not matter where you're from, what color your skin is. One day, it won't matter what side of the tracks, whether you live in a McMansion in the suburbs or a flop house in the inner city. It won't matter whether you come from Tel Aviv or Tehran, whether you're black, white, yellow, or brown, in full health or crippled. Because in this new city, those neighborhoods, those addresses, those disabilities are all irrelevant. The dividing walls will be broken down. The streets will literally have no name. There will be neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. That's how the Bible talks about this. Male nor female, straight nor gay, single nor married, rich nor poor, because Christ is all and in all. And he'll put everything under its feet and make all things new. Could it be true? Do you believe it? That instead of obliterating this world, God is in the process of recreating it. Of putting all things back together through his son. That instead of leaving us alone in our pain and our brokenness, God has come down in the person of Jesus Christ to heal and transform us. You believe that? Bono, for one, is counting on it. In a revealing interview he did with French journalist Mishka Asayas, Bono said this, The thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between karma and grace. You see, at the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. I'm like, Bono's done some reading. And yet along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap, you sow stuff. Grace defines reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. And the interviewer says at this point, he says, I'd be interested to hear that. Here's what Bono says. He says, that's between me and God. <laughs> but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep, beep. <laughs> it doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for Grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. The interviewer says to him, the son of God who takes away the sins of the world, I wish I could believe in that. And Bono says, it's not far-fetched to me. I love the idea that God says, look, you Cretans, There are certain results to the way we are, to selfishness. And there's mortality as part of your very sinful nature. And let's face it, you're not living a very good life, are you? There are consequences to action. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. And it should keep us humbled. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. I was like, preach it, brother. (laughs) Heaven on earth, not just up there, but God come down here to be with us too? You better believe it. And the invitation is to join him. And when I go there, I go there with you. In John chapter 14, Jesus said to his followers, in my father's house are many rooms, and I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, mark it, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. Heaven on earth, God came in the presence of Jesus to be with you. And his presence in your life brings renewal. They reveal our motives and refine our lives 
with his burning, consuming love. Can you put your faith in that? Could you invest your life in that? Let's all stand together and pray. Lord, we thank you that it's your desire that no man or any woman perish, but that all might be saved. We thank you for Jesus who has made salvation possible, not just this heaven and the afterlife, but a life here and now that is charged with purpose and meaning. We want to thank you that simple trust in your son, a simple confession that Jesus is Lord and Savior, opens the door to your kingdom and a new place in your family. Right now, Lord, we pray together to you as you taught us to pray. Would you join me? Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.